G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good to be chatting on the podcast, as always. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, I'm looking forward to today's episode, Weaning Off Worry, we've called it. So, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, worry is a very common pattern of difficulty which many people experience. And so it's thought about one in five people would have an anxiety-related condition of which a key feature is worry. And there are probably about as many people, again, who have fairly frequent worry. And so if we think, well, that's about 40%, well, in this COVID era, I suspect it would have to be about 50% of people at least would find that they're fairly frequent worries that they experience. Well, I think you and I, I think I can put our hand up here, Dad, and say that we're both people who tend to ruminate a little bit over things and worry can potentially come into that. But as I was thinking about this subject during the week, I suppose I was thinking about it in terms of optimism and pessimism because to me, worry can be to do a lot with pessimism. But at the same time, I don't think you can truly be an optimist without having at least some pessimistic mindset in the first place to be able to kind of choose the optimistic option. So I guess one thing I'm really looking forward to today is being able to, I suppose, separate some of the aspects of worry which maybe aren't as necessary or maybe just drawing us a little bit more towards the negative and maybe working out some strategies that can just help us get a little bit more towards the positive side of of rumination and worry. Yes, well, it's interesting what you said earlier because it reminds me of Martin Seligman, who is the founder of Positive Psychology, and he's often said that you really ought to have a pessimist like him to study and develop positive psychology. In other words, we don't want to be all naive and overly kind of innocently positive without being realistic. Things can go wrong in life. So we want to still have a realistic and a practical take on things. But I think like you're suggesting in the long run, it does really help if we've got a realistic slant towards the positive side of things. And I think within myself anyway, I I just sort of noticed that I think the times when I'm maybe not feeling as good or not doing so well, it is a lot harder to almost flick the switch from the negativity to the positive side of worry in that sense. So I guess that's one thing that I'm really looking forward to today is just maybe being able to distill some strategies to help us do that. Yes, well, fortunately, there are a lot of very good tips from psychology as to how we can better manage worry. So... Just to start, Dad, if we look at things in terms of a definition now, what is worry in a psychological sense? Okay, well, worry is a chain of anxious thoughts. So it's a chain of thoughts. It's about the future and where there's a purpose of focusing on what might go wrong in the hope of reducing some threat or danger. So it's future-oriented. It's looking ahead in an anxious kind of way, one thought after another, And we're trying to figure something out to help ward off some kind of threat or danger. I can imagine that's not necessarily the most uncommon thing in terms of people quite often try and think ahead to stop themselves getting into a a tricky situation at times. So what's the difference between worrying about something and maybe just thinking it through? 
Okay, well, it's going to be partly the extent to which we focus on the worry and the impact it has on us. And one way of thinking about this is that there's a relatively common anxiety disorder called generalised anxiety disorder. It would affect about 3% of people in any particular year and 6% of people at some stage of their lives, and we define it in this way. Actually, it's got a little mnemonic to it. It's, does Mr Fisk, F-I-S-C, Worry excessively about minor matters. Now, Mr. Fisk, six letters relate to six symptoms of generalised anxiety disorder. And it's whether we have worry more days than not over a six-month period and whether we have at least two of these six symptoms more days than not over a six-month period. M is muscle tension. R is restlessness. F is fatigue, I is irritability, S is sleep problems, and C is concentration problems. So that gives us a clue that if we're worrying about things a fair bit, it's going to have an impact physically on us, on things like our sleep, it'll affect our thinking, like our concentration, it'll affect our well-being through irritability, sleep, muscle tension, that kind of thing. So it does really tend to impact then on mind and body. And that's an example of when things have got to a more troublesome point. So I suppose like when we look at other kind of anxiety-related reactions, it's the extent and the persistence of how much it affects our our mind and our body and how we go about things. And so we spoke a little bit last week when we were talking about phobias, about how we can group the different types of phobias. Is that a little bit the same with worry in terms of you can group them in terms of maybe it's a a threat of physical injury as opposed to kind of material loss as opposed to health concerns? Does it help to think about things in this way? Look, I think that with worry, we tend to look more at the pattern of worrying itself and how it can get excessive. And we'll talk later on about how people can become overly wedded to the idea of worry being a helpful way of looking to sort out problems. But the range of problems that people worry about, including with generalised anxiety disorder, they tend to be also the kind of things that any of us are going to be concerned about at times. Like one example is our physical health been concerned about our health not just our own but say family members and the health of friends we might be concerned about finances how things are going around our house or our home maybe some relationship conflict might come up and um, maybe demands that we have on us we can worry about them being too much and say for generalized anxiety disorder it's when we worry about not just one thing that might be a major kind of problem it's when we have a pattern of worrying about at least two of these things quite regularly over that six-month period. or And so we also might have a tendency then to worry about minor things or at least excessively worry about any of these issues so it's actually not so productive. It's interesting you mentioned that word productive there because like when I think about worry, obviously there's that idea potentially ruminating on things too much. But at the same time, you don't necessarily want to kind of jump in naive and blind to a situation without having thought about it beforehand. So is there a way to identify the difference between when we're just really kind of ruminating unnecessarily over something and when we're kind of trying to really pick our way through a situation? Yeah, look, that's a really good question because there are times when, say, worry can be productive. And after all, as human beings, we tend to be 
problem solvers, don't we? Like uh, when we're under stress, we're going to tend to use our, our intellect or try and figure out a way of dealing with things. So there are times where we would consider worry to be productive. If we're worried about an important issue, if there's something that we can do about it, if we don't do something, it's likely to be a real problem and it's going to have an impact soon. So productive worry. There's a pressing important issue that we can do something about and if we do nothing, it won't work out too well. So we could think, well, fair enough to be a little bit worried about COVID, for example. So we can do something about that. We can physically distance, we can wear a mask, we can get tested soon after if we get symptoms, that kind of thing. That's productive worry. However, it'll be unproductive if it's not so important, so a more minor thing that we might be over-concerned about, if there's not much we can do about it, or if it's so remote that worrying about it now is not going to really help what happens, like, say, in four years' time too much. So we partly define it by those parameters. But the other way of gauging is it's how realistic we are about the risk of something going wrong and how bad that would be. So there are two main dimensions of worry or two core aspects how risky is it how likely is it that something bad will happen and secondly how truly bad would that be that's a really interesting concept in terms of breaking them down to those two aspects there because does that then mean that you can almost play around with the kind of rationality of those two things and then that can help to alleviate the worry or is it a little bit more somatic than that well, I think it, we can help ourselves be a bit more objective about worry. For example, because worry is a very verbal thing, it's these thoughts, it's this chain of thoughts running through our head, we can get caught up in vague worries and we might feel like we're trying to sort something out but nothing really useful is happening. Whereas if we really step back in a hard-nosed way and think, wait a minute, how really likely is it that I'm going to lose my job? And if I did lose my job... How terrible would that be? Now, how truly bad would that be? Now, surely that could be pretty bad in a number of ways. But by the same token, does that mean lose a job forever, never be employed again, not have any other opportunities, not be able to have some kind of fallback position, not have some of the resources to help get us through for a couple of months, that kind of thing. So even with really bad things that happen, often they're not going to turn out quite as terribly as we fear. So stepping back from the situation and really looking to rate those kind of things realistically, maybe even seek out some information on what the risk would be, that kind of thing can help us be more objective. Well, I know one thing that has almost helped me at times when I've been kind of worried and ruminating about something is you can almost try and take stock for a little bit and work out what outcomes you've achieved sort of within your own mind in the, in the last little while. And if it is the sort of situation where you're just almost re-ascertaining where everything is, like I've almost looked back at times and it can almost feel like you're kind of actively involved in the situation again, even though nothing's changed, just by sort of going, okay, hold on, what is this situation? How does it affect me? And all this sort of stuff. So I can see how you can almost get into a real cycle of wanting to continue to contribute to the situation that's causing you so many worries and stuff. So how do we know when a pattern of worry is becoming a little bit more ingrained than than maybe is sort of the most healthy for us to be able to kind of flourish going forward? I think it's when people find that they're getting stuck in it in different ways and especially 
the thinking about the future, really feeling stuck in it, where it's leading to that distress, disrupting sleep, maybe interfering with your focus on other kind of things. And so, and I think there's that clue uh, of the definition of the worry being about the future, where people really are so focused on the future that they're not really engaging themselves in the present so much so I like something that you mentioned there that you might sometimes do you might reflect back on how you've handled things leading up now I think that's a really good way of partly helping counter worry which is like you know future oriented you know chain of thoughts this verbal thing going over and over and over whereas if you stop and think of what you have done in the past to address difficulties that happened then you can actually bolster your confidence that hey wait a minute I actually can sometimes deal with problems quite well that have come out of the blue. I wasn't prepared for them. I got no forewarning, but actually I was able to work out my way through that. So the more confidence that we have looking at the past, how we've been able to deal with past challenges, and we let ourselves reflect on that, then sometimes we can remind ourselves, look, wait a minute, I don't have to know everything that's going to happen And I might be uncertain how it will turn out, but I do have ways of dealing with things at the time if something difficult comes out of the blue. I've done that before. I can do that in future. So I don't have to sit here pre-preparing for any possible bad scenario that might happen. It's interesting as you're mentioning that, Dad, because like completely agree. It's such a good thing to be able to almost catch yourself and try and kind of reclaim things a little bit in terms of your self-talk. But... I know for me anyway, when I am kind of worrying about something, it's not as if you're necessarily aware of it even at the time or that it's coming up or it's not as if you sort of get a big warning sign, you know, you're going to be worrying in about 15 minutes just letting you know. So if we are in the cycle of worrying about something and we keep finding ourselves ruminating over the same things over and over again, I can imagine that if that's a thinking style that we've employed for a long period of time, it can almost form part of our personality in some ways. As you mentioned, there's a degree to which worry is a little bit like problem solving. Well, if the way that we problem solve is always going to be to do with worrying, then it could form, as I say, part of our personality in some ways. So how do we break the cycle if it is at the stage where it is more ingrained? Okay, look, I might mention a story here to an anecdote of the example that you're giving where people might become overly wedded to worry because this was one of the most striking things I ever experienced as a psychologist to understand how ingrained worry could become. And it's based on the mistaken idea that if we worry about something, we're engaging in what might be called the work of worry. That's an expression as though it's productive And there are times when there's productive worry, but often we can get sucked in to thinking that it's helping us when it's not. And and this is an example of a fellow I saw many years ago who let this pattern become very ingrained. He was a fellow who actually for many years had been quite fine with his health and his mental health, but for the previous 10 years or so, he'd become consumed with worry. And it seemed to relate to the past where he had this job at one stage where he was responsible for the electricity supply of a regional area, meaning if something went wrong at night, 
like a kind of crisis almost, he could be woken up at any time of the night and he'd have to go out and he'd have to fix the electricity lines or the supply in some way. Otherwise, many people would be missing out on their electricity. So it was a very responsible kind of position. And the problem was he kept on getting woken up at night. Well, this had a real impact on him. And he went from having a relatively good level of well-being, but it disrupted his sleep and he became so concerned, anticipating that something might go wrong that night and the next night or whatever, he developed a a full-on generalised anxiety disorder. Well, anyway, I saw him a number of years after he developed this pattern. He was actually a little older at this stage, but he wanted to learn to worry less at a time when he was around retirement. He'd actually recently retired. And okay, so... One of the things we look to do with worry is teaching him a way of bringing down his anxiety level. So we were going to use a relaxation technique. And I remember we're in this regional hospital where I was using this technique with him and we went through a relaxation session. And he'd gone from being a very shaky, nervous kind of person to his settle back in the chair, his breathing deeply. His body was completely calm. His face was very relaxed. For 10, 15 minutes, you could tell he was in quite a trance state. You could tell his body looked very settled and comfortable. At the end of this, I invited him to open his eyes whenever he's ready. And after a number of seconds, he very gradually opened his eyes, which is more the indicator that someone has been in a bit of a trance state. And then when he came back to the room, then suddenly... He shook his body, he sort of said, oh, I couldn't relax at all. There was a mower outside and that distracted me the whole time. Now the thing is, I thought it was such a pity that we started this relaxation session and a mower started up right outside. I thought, what a pity, we'll have to stop this session. But he looked so calm, I kept on going. And then I was stunned that afterwards he said that he couldn't relax because the mower was right out the window when his body and his breathing, he was clearly relaxed. What struck me is that he was shaking himself out of that relaxed state as though he was avoiding it, as though there was something uncomfortable about letting go to that extent. And it's like he kicked into this usual mode of worrying about what would happen and feeling nervous and feeling shaky. It's like that was his default state that was very hard to let go of. And recently I learned of a theory that they have about something similar. This was an extreme example, but they talk about sometimes when people have problems with worry, what happens is they can become extra sensitive to some kind of negative emotional shift. In other words, going from being relatively comfortable to really uncomfortable and distressed. And so one way you can kind of prevent that is to keep yourself stressed in the first place. By keeping yourself worried or thinking of what will go wrong, it's a kind of defensive way of being ready for the worst happening. And you could see that with this fellow. He'd become so, in a sense, addicted to worry that he took himself straight back to that state and it was almost like fleeing from a state of being calm and settled. And I think that was a graphic example of how at times it can be really difficult to let go, to trust in yourself, to trust that things will turn out in certain ways. In fact, it can be an over-controlled way of trying to eliminate distress or prevent that sudden shift from feeling okay to not feeling okay. And unfortunately, the only way we can prevent these sudden disappointments is to keep ourselves like stressed and worried in the first place.
It's interesting you use the term addicted there because as uh, with the episode title today, I think there is an element of worry which is a little bit like an addiction because as we were saying before, you can feel like you're actively contributing to something. So uh, yeah, I feel for that fellow, but I, I can actually sort of see how it could develop over time. But I guess one thing that I wonder about there, you're speaking about the kind of connection between the mind and the body. I know there are times when I've caught myself worrying about something and you realise that you're either clenching your teeth or you're squeezing your fist. And if you look back to last week, I suppose phobias are almost a form of worrying in some ways. So is it the case that we need something a little bit like phobias to help us with the body as well as the mind? Yes. And so one of the first things that we would look at if people have generalised anxiety disorder, for example, and I mentioned that story with that fellow too, we did continue on and work with things like relaxation techniques and other techniques. And so he still had difficult patterns ongoing, but he could go through quite some improvement. And part of that was learning to settle his arousal level more. And so things like yoga, meditation, mindfulness techniques, slow breathing, anything that helps bring down our physiological arousal, that can also help with worry because when we're in a more tense state, then that's also likely to trigger more of the kind of negative thoughts as well and vice versa. It seems to me, as we've mentioned there, that there's aspects of worry that are similar to phobias in terms of if we look at the somatic, the behavioural and the cognitive. Obviously, the cognitive is a huge aspect of it. But if we look at the behavioural It seems to me that a lot to do with the behavioural aspects of worry are how we manage engaging in patterns of worry or how we manage our thoughts at certain times. Is that the case where the behavioural aspect of worry is more about engaging in worry in the first place and managing that than it is anything else? Yes, it is. And it's funny to think of it this way, but when we engage in worry and in a sense give in to it or over-focus on it, it's actually a kind of avoidance. And it's avoidance in a number of ways. One of the first things that we're doing is we're avoiding tolerating uncertainty and letting things be uncertain and ambiguous and maybe some things will go wrong, but trusting in our ability to deal with that down the track if and when something bad happens. Sure, we can go through some preparation or whatever, but rather than cogitating over something now, especially if it's actually not doing any good, we could often truthfully say that worry won't help anything in this particular situation. But continuing to engage in worry is almost like a kind of avoidance, not letting go or allowing for the uncertainty. But there's also another physiological way that worry might contribute to a level of avoidance. A number of studies suggested that when people are engaged in the act of cogitating, so this mental activity going over and over and over, there's some evidence that it actually reduces people's physiological arousal at the time. Now, there are mixed findings on that, but some studies did find that it actually reduced people's arousal, in a sense, their tension whilst they're worried. But the problem was afterwards it'd trigger off more of that arousal. So it really didn't work. If it had any impact, it was only very, very temporary and it led people to feel, say, more tense or a higher level of arousal and stress down the track. So that doesn't work either. And also, of course, other forms of avoidance, using drugs or alcohol or comfort eating strategies people might use to try and temper worry. Again, they're forms of avoidance 
as opposed to not avoiding, would be to think about what we can realistically do to address problems that we know that are on the near horizon. And then apart from that, focus on our everyday activities and roles and have a bit of faith that when we do face other challenges or unexpected difficulties that we'll have ways of getting by. I think it's interesting talking about avoidance there because I think potentially that would help us to identify some of the thoughts that are maybe unnecessarily worrisome and some of the thoughts that are more productive because if something's inherently avoidant, it's probably a little bit more likely to be more of the unproductive side of things. So I wonder Is there a way that we can group our thoughts to help us identify which ones are a little bit more unnecessarily worrisome? Yes, there are some things to look out for. And one of the clues is our worrisome thoughts, when they get out of hand, are likely to be future-oriented. So one example is catastrophizing. So we're thinking about the future, but we'll have a sense of alarm while we're thinking about things. So if we get a sense that maybe we're thinking about the future with real alarm then that gives us a chance to step back and think, well, wait a minute, are we maybe exaggerating a little bit how likely this is to happen, this bad outcome, and how bad that would be? So it's watching out for catastrophizing thoughts first and foremost. Then a number of thoughts have a kind of intolerance of uncertainty. We're really trying to figure something out in a difficult or complex or ambiguous situation to try and kind of figure out what's going to happen or be across whatever might happen. Well, sometimes that's not realistic or sometimes it might take so much effort trying to figure out every little bad thing that might go wrong that we can just get ourselves going around in circles. So part of it is are we allowing ourselves for some uncertainty in future and that aspect of trusting in ourselves to be able to deal with it at the time rather than trying to think through every kind of alternative and maybe being a bit black and white in trying to come up with solutions. Also with worry, it's going to tend to be selectively focusing on the negative. So we mightn't have so many other thoughts coming in about, oh, but actually this might go a bit better this way or I might be able to draw on some support from here or last time I was worried about something like that, it didn't turn out that way, so maybe this time that it won't either. So we can get a clue if our thoughts are almost uniformly negative in many situations that there are some positive aspects or resources we can draw on. Another type of worry that is nearly always getting into difficulty is what we might call type 2 worry. Type 1 worry, worried about a particular thing happening, an external event. Type 2 worry is being worried about the worry itself. I'm I'm worried about my mind. I'm worrying so much that that will be a real problem. This is really going to affect my health. Or I'm really worried about the way I worry. It reflects that I'm a weak-minded person or reflects I've got extra problems beyond what I should. So if people get caught up in the worry, rather than, say, stepping back from it in a certain way and looking at other strategies to deal with it, then people can get into more difficulties that way. Well, what can we do then if we are finding ourselves worrying about stuff all the time? What are some of the general principles to help us stop worrying as much? Okay, and I'll come back a little later too to some of the specific strategies that we can do with worrisome thoughts which involve some kind of distancing or stepping back from them. But as you say, the general principles, one of the first things is we don't have to over-control our thinking or even our worry. 
Like accepting some level of intrusive thoughts or some level of distracting thoughts is fair enough, especially at times of greater stress. Like at the moment with many people having experienced being in lockdown, concerns about COVID, concerns about finances, work, it's normal to have a number of things to be concerned about and have some worries about. So it's not looking to over-control that, but maybe sometimes letting some of those concerns be in the background like kind of white noise. At times it might be there more than usual, but not have to over-control it, accepting some of it being there. Also, people can sometimes get caught up in thinking of their worries uncontrollable or really out of control and dangerous. But basically, it's not dangerous, it's uncomfortable rather than dangerous. It's distracting or disruptive rather than dangerous or unsettling rather than dangerous. And actually, there's some things that people can sometimes do if they do see their worry as uncontrollable. One strategy is to look to at least delay it and think, for example, well, I'm going to leave it till three o'clock today. In the meantime, I'm getting on with what I'm doing now, but at three o'clock, I'll set aside 15 minutes and I'll let myself think over my worries about such and such a situation rather than now. And even if someone finds that they can delay it or postpone their worrying for a little bit of time, it shows it's not completely uncontrollable. Or otherwise, a more dramatic strategy is for the person to allow themselves to see if they can worry themselves mad, so to speak. Okay, let the worry be uncontrollable. Go to town on your worry. Let it be as maximum as possible. Worry yourself to become psychotic even. See how that goes. And then when people allow themselves to engage in this rampant worry, often after five minutes or so, people realise, look, there's something a bit futile about this. It does seem a little bit ridiculous or over the top or catastrophic kind of thing. So funnily enough, when people look to completely let go of control, sometimes they find paradoxically they're a little less concerned about it. But the main strategies involve different ways of distancing ourselves from our thoughts. I can imagine that can be quite a tough thing to do in many ways. And particularly when we're worried about something, it can seem like that situation is all-encompassing in many ways. So do you have any strategies to help us distance ourselves from our thoughts in that way? There are a number of things that can work really well that way, and it's a bit like a menu. I'll mention a few things on a menu that people find helpful. And they all relate to this idea of stepping back from our thoughts, our worrisome thoughts. And one example is saying to ourselves, I'm having the thought that... So, for example, a person thinks, oh, I'm going to lose my job. If the person pauses and steps back and thinks, I'm having the thought that I'm going to lose my job, it just gives you a little bit extra distance. And actually, I can mention I heard from someone recently who applied that technique with some obsessive compulsive thinking. For example, someone could think, I'm contaminated by touching that. And the person can say to themselves, I'm having the thought that I'm contaminated by touching that. It just takes you back from the situation, allows for more objectivity to come in. Another thing that a person can do is turn the verbal thought into visual imagery, like dark storm clouds, and allow the worrisome thoughts to come and then move on, like dark storm clouds coming into your view and moving on. And I know a person with schizophrenia, he uses that very well for some delusional thoughts. Very concerning, disruptive, delusional thoughts. But 
he's able to think of them like storm clouds and allow them to move on and redirect his attention to whatever else he's doing at the time. It doesn't have to work perfectly, but it gives more distance. There's a classic one that we use in hypnosis, which is for the person to imagine the particular thoughts as sitting on leaves on a stream and let the leaves gently flow down the stream and out of view, taking the worrisome thought with them. So let that picture be there and it's letting go of the thought with that visual image. Sometimes we can change the thought into something which seems a bit silly by making it into a chipmunk voice, such as a parent who's concerned about whether they're going to be able to manage with homeschooling continuing on. And they might think to themselves, I'm not going to be able to handle homeschooling. I'm not going to be able to handle homeschooling. I'm not going to be able to handle homeschooling. Like after a while, it starts to sound a little bit ridiculous and it leads you to step back a bit from the situation. But another standard technique is writing down our thoughts or concerns or worries on a page. Maybe writing a paragraph about oh, I'm really concerned about such and such happening. It might be something with the home or finances or whatever. And writing out a paragraph on that, maybe even adding a prediction of how likely you think it is a particular bad outcome might happen and how bad that would be. Because then you can look back at it about a week later and you might have revised what your estimates are. And that helps you step back and realise that some of these things are subjective, but over a period of time we might see them a little bit differently. It's not as though our concerns are stuck in just the same way the whole time. And so anything else that helps people step back from a situation can help. Sometimes it might even be discussing it with a friend or family member. That can help to get a concern out and then check how realistic that we're being with that. And that can be a way of drawing on support with a particular issue so long as we don't just get caught up in a pattern of looking for reassurance. Because if we're looking for reassurance and we're saying things to be reassured again and again and again, that's also one of those patterns of avoidance. So it's whether we're actually engaging with stepping back, looking to be realistic, looking at the likelihood something bad will happen, how bad it would be, but using these distancing techniques in the meantime, the visual image of the clouds passing or leaves on a stream, I'm having the thought that people even with very disruptive thoughts can find some relief from those techniques. Well, I think it's something that can potentially offer benefit in a whole range of areas, that whole idea of viewing your thoughts as thoughts, if that makes sense. And like I remember one time, and it was it was not long after my mate had passed away, and I remember walking down by the river, and I was feeling in a, in a pretty bad way about things, and there was some sort of worrisome aspects to it, and I'd say also sort of elements of depression and all this sort of stuff too, but I remember walking along and having the thought that... <laughs> I was walking along and I was kind of opening up my mind and literally leaving certain thoughts on the side of the road. And so you'd walk along and, oh, yeah, that's something I'm worried about. Yep, I am. I'll accept that. I'll just leave it there sort of on the side of the footpath. And as I was kind of walking along and I'd kind of come back to that thought in my head, you can almost trip yourself up and kind of go, hold on, no, no, you, you left that thought on the side of the road. Don't keep coming back to that. So... It was a way that was, for me, probably the first time that I kind of recognised the power I had over my thoughts. And that was a little exercise, which sounds like relates a little bit to what you're talking about there, which for me was really powerful because I was able to gain a little bit more control once you're able to kind of say, hold on, no, we, we, you know, we decided we weren't going to go down this road. 
That's a very good example, and it reminds me of something that a war veteran did, not just with thoughts, but also some very harsh and negative images related to his war experience. So this was to do with his PTSD. And one of the most helpful things that he did is he took some of his negative thoughts and some of his images and memories, and he put them in a jar, and he put the jar on the shelf. He knew the jar was on the shelf. He knew what was in the jar, but it wasn't in his face, so to speak. He distanced himself from it, like you mentioned. It also reminds me of a hypnosis technique where someone can imagine a helium balloon strapped to their arm around their wrist, it's tied around their wrist, and in the balloon it has all these worrisome thoughts. And we use a method in hypnosis, arm levitation, where the person's arm raises off the chair. And they can imagine the helium balloon with the worrisome thoughts in it lifting their arm off the chair. Then you cut the string, the balloon goes up and their arm drops down on the chair. The thoughts are off in the distance. There are all sorts of images and strategies that we can use. And I really like the one that you came up with. That was something you came up with spontaneously and it made that difference. Well, it worked to a degree. Well, it's one of the things that we've spoken a little bit about on the podcast before is that idea of almost having a positive project to substitute in for negative rumination or negative thoughts. I wonder if this helps a little bit with worry too in terms of if we can get on the front foot and kind of reclaim our self-talk with something positive, does that help us draw away from the negative thoughts? Look, it does. And you're getting at something there. If we can focus on some positive action that is in some ways relevant to our thoughts. Well, anything that we focus on in the present tense, anything that we're doing, some activity, a productive activity, or we're engaging in a role like a parenting or a work role or engaging in some social activity, when we're focusing our attention on something else, we have less attention for the worry. So the worry is this future-oriented, this verbal thing happening. No, focus on the present and what we're doing. That could be a helpful thing. But if we can do something in the present which is symbolic of addressing the thoughts, like if we have a concern about, say, future work, we'll work productively on some task now that's going to be worthwhile. It's actually going to help the likelihood of having a work role continuing Or if it's a concern of how things will go with finances, it might be taking some step or action which is relevant to that. It might even be choosing to buy a slightly cheaper item than a more expensive item. Uh, It's something that we can do at the time. But certainly with COVID, things like wearing a mask, physical distancing, still having contact with our GP about things that we need to. We can do things productive that help our physical health. Where we turn our attention, that's going to influence us. So if we keep our attention more often than not on the present rather than the future and the past and things that we're actually engaging in, things we're doing at the time, I find that when people are gainfully occupied whether it's dealing with OCD or whether it's dealing with worry or other kinds of distracting thoughts, when we're gainfully occupied or engaged in things that we're doing, then that means that we have less attention for worrisome thoughts and they tend to recede. It's it's a more faint white noise in the background. So how about then, for example, in the middle of the night? Because I'd probably look back at times when I've been worrying about things 
most of the time it's probably at night when it's not necessarily conducive to kind of getting up and working on something that could for example make you a lot more awake than you would have been is it then the case to think of a way to come up with a little project where you can actually contribute towards something or is it best to try and find a way to let the worry pass so you're able to get back to sleep sooner and be able to hit it the next day when you've got sort of all your resources? Well, the general thing to sleep is we need to have our body fairly relaxed and to reduce our thoughts. So worry, being a thought-based thing, that's going to work against our sleep. So we have this general notion of having the idea that the morning is wiser than the evening, meaning look to sort out things the next day. Rather than figure it out during the night, that's going to tend to be caught up in a pattern of worry that won't be so helpful. Better to leave it to the next day. So how can we switch away from the thoughts to something else? One is, again, the worry is verbal. So if we can shift to something bodily, like some somatic focus, if we can slow our breathing, notice the comfort of the warm bed around us, maybe notice something of the feeling of the weight of our body against the mattress. If we can get our attention on something else, including going through some slow breathing or relaxation technique whilst in bed, that can help reduce our thoughts by focusing on one other distracting, comfortable thing. That can help. And another thing we can do is to focus, say, on a picture, such as imagine ourselves lying on a beach or in some other comfortable situation that we'd like to be in. Again, by shifting away from the thought to the feeling of maybe warmth or comfort or maybe the visual experience of a calm and pleasant scene. One I sometimes use is imagining looking out from a cliff towards the horizon and focus on that line, that faint line, where the sea and the sky meet, that faint line of the horizon, even looking to have that image can reduce your thoughts in some way. But the general thing is to recognise that that nighttime worry isn't going to tend to help. It's better to contain it to, for example, the next day or even in the evening if we know that we're concerned about something, write it down, write down a paragraph or two on a sheet of paper rather than go to bed with it and trying to figure it out. Or even in rare situations, if someone's so disrupted by worries, it's almost better to get up out of bed rather than just lie in bed worrying, worrying, worrying and developing that habit. It's almost better to get up if you're not getting back to sleep, noting down maybe even a couple of sentences in a note of something that you're concerned about and thinking, well, I'm leaving it there. I'll come back to that tomorrow. I'm not going to try and figure that out now. Back to bed. You know you've written it down. You're not going to forget what it's about. And then the chances are, if you then let yourself at least rest and not try and figure that out, just say if the next day you look at that note, you might even see things quite differently because often things do seem different in the light of day than at night when you might be less inhibited to keep out certain kinds of worries. The thing is not to get sucked into thinking you're going to do something productive by trying to figure it out during the night when when you're in bed Bed is for sleeping. It's allowing yourself to get to sleep rather than trying to figure out anything else. Well, it's something that we haven't really spoken about on the podcast for a little while as explicitly, but I wonder if positive psychology has any strategies to help, particularly with, for example, during the middle of the night, because 
potentially positive psychology would have some little even thought exercises, I imagine, to be able to move your thoughts from a more negative place to a little bit more of a positive or productive one? Well, it's something that actually it's an interesting idea. It's something that I wouldn't have tried um, personally, but it would potentially tie in, for example, of what went well exercise. If someone is quite distracted and worried about the future, say in bed at night, a standard, very helpful positive psychology exercise is to think of three things that went well that day, or otherwise three things that you feel grateful for. It might be that it was a cool day, but nice and sunny and for a time in the middle of it. It might be that you caught up with a friend. It might be that you enjoyed your evening meal. It might be that you enjoyed something that was on TV or you enjoyed reading about an article or listening to a podcast that day. So looking back on some of the positive things can be worthwhile or even thinking about one or two things that we feel grateful for. What's something that's going okay in our life? What's something we feel grateful for? So if it doesn't take too much thinking time, because we're not trying to increase our thinking when we're in bed, but it may be if we shift our thoughts from, if you like, the more negative to the positive in that way, that might help. But I think then soon enough, allowing yourself to be more settled physically and looking to reduce your thoughts by focusing on one thing, maybe one calm image or something like that, that's often the most helpful way to go. Well, it seems to me with worry that as we've spoken about a little bit, so much of it is about reclaiming your self-talk and and diverting your self-talk down a more positive path. But one thing about that is that The cognitive aspect of things, as we've spoken about, there's so much more to it in that you need to be able to create the conditions to be able to have that control over your thoughts, I think. And so I wonder if there's anything that anyone can do to almost better help create those conditions in terms of, is there anything that we can do to really stack things in our favour to be able to divert the nature of our self-talk at all? Well, the main circumstances that are going to help our well-being is if we're mainly focused in the present rather than the past and the future, and we're mainly focused on the positive things that are happening. So the general principle is whenever we're engaged in what we're doing, wherever we're engaged in our tasks or life roles, that helps create the conditions for well-being. And as we've talked in previous podcasts, whenever we're doing that and drawing on our character strengths, for example, our creativity, our persistence, our social intelligence, our kindness, that's helping create conditions for, say, positivity in the present. But anything also that helps us be relatively settled and focused. So if people do have practices in everyday life like yoga or meditation or mindfulness or use relaxation relaxation techniques, that helps also be aware of our physical and mental state. And say mindfulness principles and techniques, basically that's about helping us be focused in the present on what we're doing and what we're experiencing at the time. And the more attention we have on what's in front of us, what we're engaged with, the more we're focusing on our environment, so to speak, our attention turned outward rather than inward that's often a helpful kind of outlook to have as well for our general well-being. And as we've spoken a little bit on the podcast about before, I imagine bilateral stimulation is something too that would help. 
Yes, that's really worth mentioning, that bilateral stimulation technique. It's one of the most remarkable techniques for sometimes giving fairly quick benefit in thinking about a specific worry. And I know many people have used that technique, and I believe we'll have a video demonstrating how people can use that and how they can access an app that helps them do this, which involves thinking of a particular worry or concern and then say having earplugs in and then there's a click in one ear and then the other playing that track and it's remarkable how it can work for example I can think of one person that I saw who was very worried about seeing her family in the near future was a family gathering and every time her family got together they had these huge arguments and she thought the same was going to happen again she always left feeling terrible so she was worried every time that she might have this contact with a family. So I thought, well, well, we'll use this particular example. We'll have her imagine sitting around the dining table with the family members and imagining what might be happening at the time, even allowing pictures of the worst that might be happening at the time. She put in the earplugs and we put on the app, so she had that bilateral stimulation, clicks in one ear and then the other. And then after about half a minute, she started smiling And then you could tell her face looked lighter and then we kept that going for maybe another half minute or so and then afterwards I asked her what was going on then and then she said, well, look, there's something laughable. When I get together with my family, it might be this happens, that happens and then something else and then she realised that there are a number of different ways that she could handle that situation or approach it. She didn't just have to get sucked into reacting the way that she typically would if, for example, her sister said something in particular which she might find a bit offensive or, or her father might act in a particular way. It allowed her to take more distance. But the bilateral stimulation technique, it decreases people's arousal whilst they're thinking of or picturing something that might be worrisome. And so if people have the picture or the thought in mind and then have the earplugs in and so can lower the arousal whilst thinking of this picture or image, it can separate out the image or the situation from the worry they used to attach with it. In other words, it's another decentering technique that can work extraordinarily well at times. So yes, that could be something really worth experimenting with. So I'm glad that is on this podcast page. Well, yeah, as you say, we'll certainly pop that video up on the podcast page with all the other resources for today's podcast. But, Dad, thanks for chatting with me today. I've enjoyed it as always. Thank you, Rowan.